Hey, Jeff here, and today with one of the readers of The Daily Evolver, who's written, and we've had a couple of nice back and forths, and I think he's a really smart guy, and I'm really happy to be talking to him. And welcome, Jeremy Johnson. Thanks, Jeff. It's an honor to be on the show. Yeah, cool. We were just talking a minute ago. You're uh, finishing up a degree in consciousness studies at Goddard College, and what a cool major that is, huh? Yeah, I guess so. It's kind of all over the place, but it's a very exciting uh transdisciplinary emphasis of, you know, mythology, psychology, transpersonal psychology. So it's been quite a, an amazing two years. I've learned so much. Well, it smells integral to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what we've been batting back and forth in the comment section of my blog is basically a, a matter of consciousness, devolution and development. And that is this idea of progress. And that the cosmos is unfolding into new structures of goodness, truth, and beauty. And how could that be? <laughs> Look around. You know, something like that, right? Yeah. I personally have a kind of ambiguous relationship with the idea of progress. Even having studied or taken a look at biology or the evolution of human beings themselves and what we had to go through for us to be, you know, chatting here with this technology right now and talking about these wonderful ideas and possibilities, so much, both good and bad, had to happen in order for that to emerge. So, I mean, I kind of have an ambiguous relationship with, let's say, the progress that's going on right now in, you know, Western society with democracy and the new freedoms and the new choices that we have. The sort of postmodern question, I guess, and the question that we personally, I got asked in, let's say, undergrad, was okay, well, you're having progress, but at, who, at whose expense is this progress happening for? Like, for instance, the, I, I heard there was a recent riot with the company that produces the iPhone. It just kind of sets you with this uneasy feeling that, like, although you personally are having progress, is the progress relative? And is the progress at someone else's expense? And how, how as an integral thinker, can you wrestle with that possible reality that, like, some of the things that we feel are evolutionary also have the shadow side to them, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really potent question and one that I think we deal with as we wrestle with this idea of evolution, evolutional progress or evolutionary mm -hmm. progress. And you even mentioned in your last note to me about the you know golden ages living next to dark ages throughout history. And mm -hmm. that's true, too. And I guess the one thing that has me cheerful about this is that I actually do think that the game changes at modernity in important ways and changes even more at post-modernity that we can notice and take some heart in. And that is that there's a realization at modernity. And when we talk about cultures moving into structures like modernity and post-modernity and so forth, I think there's lots of ways that we can slice and dice that. But I think at a minimum, we have to look at how cultures move into a new stage of development in terms of their exteriors, that is, in terms of their technology, and then also in terms of their interiors and in terms of actually how they feel and see the world. And there are, there are cultures who have moved into modernity in terms of their technology uh, who are clearly pre-modern in terms of their consciousness, you might say. And, of course, a classic example of that is Nazi Germany. They basically went after the project of, of genocide, which is a good old project of the human race for many millennia, 
but this time they used trains and logistics and factories and gas chambers, and that's just this special horror of mm-hmm. that act is just so resonant. And, of course, that act, the Holocaust, and really the first half of the 20th century in general, really turned into be a freight train coming at this whole idea that people moved towards progress, which was actually believed among the early modernists that, you know, finally we're rational, and thank God, because now we can get out of all of this superstition and all of this crap that has been plaguing humanity for, for centuries, and uh, of course, the 20th century was a big not-so-fast, right? Yeah. I think the biggest insight for me with regards to the last century is probably from Jean Gepser. Um, mm-hmm. I've been looking at his work quite a lot this past year or two, and one of the major insights that I think he contributed to this issue is that the older you know, structures of consciousness, the mythical, the magical, and even the archaic, these, are, these don't go away. Um, right even with the emergent structures, such as the mental, rational, these structures remain. And if we're not aware of them, if we literally, if we haven't integrated them, if they're not transparent to us, um, they can sort of hijack us. They can sort of take over. Uh, So a rational-minded person, let's say living in Nazi Germany, may be using super advanced mental capacities to design all this amazing technology, but he could be driven with a kind of magical, sorcerer-oriented um, consciousness that yes. I think Gepser made a great point at when he said, you know, the etymology of the word magic is related to make and machine. So there's all these very interesting, intricate relationships between the older structures of consciousness and the emergent structures. Not that they're not emergent. Uh, it just seems that if we're not careful, you know, they can sort of hijack us. Right. So I guess my question is, in the modern world, um, are we... We've certainly learned our lesson to some degree after World War II, but um, are there more are there more shadows to explore? Yeah, I think there are, and I think um, I think we can also note what progress we've made, and and I think when we see that people move into a modern stage of consciousness in the interiors, and that's characterized by the idea of the rights of man, and that sovereignty is located in the individual. And basically this whole Declaration of Independence is, of course, a great modernist document in the interiors about how the, the, we see the world. Of course, written by people who bought and sold human beings. Right. I mean, talk yeah. about the shadows <laughs> and talk about the, what's still under the surface. I mean, history is full of that. And yet, that's a powerful document that moved us forward, that moved the world forward, uh, and, and not that document necessarily, that's, that's an example of it, but it's just this idea that people have basic human rights. There's a basic consensus on the planet that that is true. There's still mm-hmm. outliers, of course. Um, there's still outliers within every culture. Uh, but um, I think that we can take some heart in that basically – no modern country has ever gone to war with another modern country. And I'm talking about countries that are modern both in the interiors and exteriors. And there's some realization that happens at modernity where we realize the way forward is not to plunder our enemy, but the way forward is to actually co-create with our enemy. And so you hear, if you, you, know, you listen to the business stations and all of that stuff, is 
the worry of the intelligentsia or the worry of the moneyed class, even the capitalists, yeah. is not that China is going to get strong. It's that China is going to get weak or that their growth is going to notch back a couple points. It's that mm -hmm. is that's really new in his history, uh, Jeremy. And I think we need to notice that uh, and, mm -hmm. and to realize the potency of that and that. Even countries like Africa, in, in Africa, aside from, again, a few outliers like Zimbabwe and Congo and some of these places that are real, still really struggling with you know, post-colonial, um, even tribal stuff, that they're growing like crazy. And, and they, too, are entering the world community, so to speak. Hmm. I generally agree. I think this even touches on, like, let's say, what Teilhard um, de Chardin was talking about with the whole world being brought together, you know, it's almost this inextricable sense of unity that's, that's sort of drawing us towards mm -hmm. each other, whether we like it or not, even if it's in conflict or being brought together. I mean, he was, no. I love his optimism because, I mean, even during World War II, he was saying, like, well, you know what, the world is being brought together. It's, yeah. it's a violent bringing together. It's a violent convergence. But the little nugget of optimism in this or, or truth is that ultimately we're going to start to depend on each other, and there's some kind of tiny little global planetary consciousness that's possibly emerging through this. And I would say that, like, the example that you gave uh, about China is a good, um, I don't know, a good, a good uh, update on that mentality because I think, you know, economic interdependence um, and other such things are actually a really good sign that we're headed in the right direction. It's just that, you know, in the future, I do wonder, though, in 100, 200 years from now, uh, folks will be listening to, you know, our talks and, and wondering, um, well, did they realize, like just the way we think about the founding fathers having slaves, did they realize that we basically had, you know, similar issues? But you know what? That would be great because all the more credit to those future people who have that heightened sense of compassion and empathy that they are aware of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and it's um, actually interesting to think that you just sort of defaulted into that they would. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a good assumption. I guess. I hope it is. I hope it is um, too. I hope that's the direction we're going. And I, I mean, well, what do you think? I mean, when you think about a hundred years, you know, how could it go wrong? I mean, how do you see what's the, you know, shadow trajectory? Oh, geez. Uh, unfortunately, being a transdisciplinary student, you read a lot of potential uh, futures and um, theories. I mean, aside from global warming and, and everything that is, you know, very much a potential route for disaster, I, I think there's also the possibility that with economic collapse, with social and economic stratification, these are huge issues that may or may not give progress to developing nations. I mean, I know you gave a few examples in Africa, but I mean, for, the, for each positive example, there are negative examples of where uh, first world corporations come in and sort of plow down the competition or, for instance, destroy the rainforest through industrialization because yeah. there's a profit in it. So there's this kind of a, a double-edged sword to this new economic global polity where yeah. there's a potential dangerous side where, you know, the economic growth unchecked without a new kind of consciousness or awareness that are in the people who are doing this sort of thing, they could, you know, destroy a whole ecosystem. They could create some kind of economic and ecological collapse. And then, for instance, I mean, we don't do colonialism anymore, but I think I mentioned this in the comments, and this, this is what I'd actually be very interested to hear from you about. 
it's often called neo-imperialism, or it's basically economic bullies coming in and not allowing for a country to really develop on its own, but sort of be outcompeted by these, you know, uh, first world corporations that come in and do monocrops and so on and so forth. And they create jobs, but they kind of starve the local economy from ever getting off its own, getting on its own feet. This is, a, I think, a pretty big issue that a lot of sociologists and anthropologists talk about and try to raise awareness of. Mm-hmm. So I think this would be an interesting thing to kind of explore mm-hmm. with you. Yeah, uh, I think it's fascinating and, uh, and important. It's almost like the key is in your last sentence, and that is this is happening, and it's being pointed to by a whole slew of anthropologists and ecologists and scientists, and there we go. Yeah. And what I would say that is encouraging there is that for the first time in history, the raping of the environment is being pointed to um, and alarm bells are being set off that people are listening to and are responding to. Mm-hmm. Just as in this country, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, the brown cloud in Denver, the, um, we couldn't get near Lake Erie. I grew up in western Pennsylvania. It was just you would never swim in it. You would never swim in the rivers, the beautiful rivers of western Pennsylvania, you know. And when my dad was a kid, the street lights went on at noon in Pittsburgh because that's when they let out the Coke ovens. Human beings are capable of cleaning up their act. We've seen Mm -hmm. it and developed in first world countries all over. There's still that unchecked growth model and and modernity runs on growth even healthy modernity runs on growth they don't run Mm -hmm. on sustainability green post-modernity runs on sustainability that's the insight of green and so you're right the 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 progress is and will happen is and is indeed happening in the contestation between basically the private sector and the public sector and the public sector being the governments of, say, Brazil, which have gotten very tough on rain, further rainforest destruction. And yet I hear egregious examples of where it's still going on, and it's hard to know in some ways actually what really is happening. And that's another just sort of parenthetical that I would place on the table, and that is that mm-hmm. all of these stories that we hear from the anthropologists, from the corporatists, from the Republicans from the Atlantic magazine, everybody has a certain perspective and a certain antenna for what's actually even the facts of the matter, you know, and examples. And so there's a new way that's of processing this information. I feel it, but I don't quite, I can't quite wrap my head around it. You know what I mean? It's, I think I, I think I do. Yeah. I think of, a philosophical law that I stumbled upon a year or so ago called the law of the infinite cornucopia. And Mm -hmm. it's by a a Polish philosopher, I'm forgetting his name, but it's an interesting uh, philosophical postulate. And and what it says is, basically in our modern and even postmodern information age, this is a contemporary philosopher, there's enough information to provide evidence to support any perspective you want to take for whatever reason you want to take it. Then it's a postmodern observation that I think ought to be included in an integral, a healthy integral view. And what it calls forth is not to throw up your hands and say it, it's unknowable. In a certain way, it's unknowable. 
but actually there's a knowableness to it too. And, and part of that is just seeing the larger patterns of history and seeing the larger patterns of the cosmos, basically, one of which is evolution itself or emergence itself. And that is the yeah. systems tend towards complexity, actually. Yeah, and that was like one of uh, Teilhard's famous uh, law of complexity consciousness, yeah. that, you know, as time goes on, we human societies will organize in more and more complex ways, which in turn, that complexity intensifies our consciousness. It, it brings yeah. us to an, uh, almost a boiling point, like, he has that famous passage that, um, I forgot the whole passage, but it's that one line, thought is born. But before that, he has this whole buildup of uh, how the evolution of life and, and, the, and the early hominids built up to this point where we literally had like a phase change. We, we shifted yeah. over just like a, like a pot of water that started to boil. It becomes yes. something just leaps into a different state. Um, yes. And yes. I would say that at this point, we're not quite there yet, but we're certainly, the water's getting hot, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're going to have to really, I think the change is going to happen no matter what. I think the boiling point's going to happen. I agree with you. Um, I just, I hope that we can work with that. I hope we can make that transition and not, um, I don't know, I can't get, think of a good example except for knock the pot over or something because yeah. it's too hot. I hope we realize we're. this is where we're headed and, you know, we really yeah. need to embrace a, a global empathetic consciousness um, in order yes. to handle that heat, in order to yes. handle that awareness. Yes, um, yes, so well put. So I think, uh, just sum it up, um, I think with, you know, the multinational corporations, et cetera, from an interesting angle, maybe they too are have to learn something from this experience, this this boiling point of history. Uh, in the same way that, let's say, we're looking at the Middle East right now, and they, there's this whole debate between, you know, do people have freedom of speech? Should they be able to say whatever they want? And so forth, mm-hmm. um, Western values, mm-hmm. Eastern values, that sort of thing. Uh, we're learning how to get along with each other, and mm-hmm. that will not include violence, hopefully, or it yes. shouldn't include violence, or yes. it can't. Yes. If mm-hmm. I may just interrupt for just a second on that point, it, it in terms of any historical um, uh, perspective it included very few deaths this mm-hmm. this the, you know this current uprising throughout the middle east is very much large very much symbolic it's almost mm-hmm. nobody's getting killed i don't want to say you know it's two, several hundred but in the yeah. scheme of things and of course tragedies for all of them i can, you know this this is where it gets difficult to just be blithe about these things but you still have to notice progress in the sense that a huge face change i love that term is going mm-hmm. on in the Middle East, and in terms even of our understanding, just our, 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 just feel the karmas going back and forth right now, mm-hmm. you know. And and it takes sometimes this kind of. I was just looking, watching a documentary on ACT UP, the AIDS activists of the 80s. You know, they basically were crazy people, but they were mm-hmm. desperate, and so they got everybody's attention. And very small numbers of people made big changes, yeah. and that's happening there. And I, um, you know, of course it overboils here and there, and this is a, you know, a chaotic system. But there's a center of gravity that is um, intelligent here. Mm-hmm. But go yeah. on. Yeah, well, like on that, on that note, um, I think at least when it comes to what the West has to work through, um, even though it seems like it's sort of been unconsciously pioneering this global culture by industrialization and, you know, democratic values and, world government ideas, um, 
besides all of that, I think one of the things that we might have to work through or that this these times are kind of showing us with, uh, you know, uh, the subjects we've been talking about is that the West has to learn how to become more sustainable. Like, that's the sure. shadow side. Sure. Um, you know, for us, we need to sort of be aware of, you know, how we are impacting other areas of the world. So it's kind of like a reverse. Um, I was actually speaking to my partner last night about this because she's Egyptian. And we are talking about it, mm. and we were saying that, you know, Egypt's sort of learning how to work with all these different value systems and to not get necessarily agitated by these different value systems but learn how to coexist with them. And for us, it's not a matter of just coexistence. It's also a matter of what you're doing may be preventing coexistence. So how can we become more aware of that um, on the other other end of it? So, I mean, that's sort of like my take on it, and I, I am too very hopeful about the future it just seems like there needs to be a lot more awareness all around. The good news is I think conversations like this and, of course, folks who are protesting against the protests in the Middle East saying, you know, we aren't violent, we don't want these folks to represent right. who we are. Right. Um, and then, you know, here in the West, you know, we have sociologists and anthropologists and folks trying to organize to bring awareness and to make those changes. I think these are all great things that we should uh, Personally, I feel like we have to encourage it as much yeah. as possible and get it organized as much as possible. Right on, man. So, yeah. yeah, and I think there's a, a, an awakening in the evolutionary and integral community about just that, that it's not enough to think about it anymore, that there has to be some engagement. That's the nature of emergence, too, is that it's mm-hmm. contention. If you look at the yeah. fields and you know meadows, it's one organism struggling against another that actually moves the ball forward. Mm-hmm. And this is where I get mad at God. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was just a terrible way to set things up. Yeah, that tension. Yeah. And well, um a lot of uh, a lot of the world's religions would probably agree with you as far as their uh their understanding. Um I mean, the Gnostics certainly would, but uh you know, I mean, there's that whole idea that this world, Steve McIntosh has been talking about that a lot in his um, interviews, and when I interviewed him too, this world is sort of the ultimate breakdown of the infinite as it's trying to, you know, mm-hmm. recognize itself again, and yes. it kind of splits itself into infinite tensions and infinite conflicts. Yes. Um, yes. So it's a yes. it's a rough journey. Yes, um, it is. Yeah. It is, and it's one of the uh, reasons that I enjoy our interaction and reading your stuff is that I know you have a, uh, you know, you have a spiritual realization of practice. And I think that's what's called for as we try to befriend this world as it is and not how we think it ought to be or how we wish it were or how it would be if the way we thought was the way everybody thought. And that actually we're called on to surrender to what is and to see the bigger intelligence that we can rest in mm. somehow. Does that, any of that make <laughs> It definitely does. It, it's sort of how I hope that, uh, I hope it's the direction that we're going as a species. Um, and spiritually speaking, I'm, you know, completely in line with what you're saying. We kind of really have to take a Taoist approach to this whole thing because I think trying to force it either way or, dumping our assumptions on the world isn't going to help us understand, you know, these processes that are at work. Right. And if we really want to evolve, we really have to be that much more sensitive, that much more, 
you know, in the flow of things, understanding the way the these cosmic forces work so we can, you know, make life better for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the things that is difficult for uh, the move into integral, and that is mm-hmm. that how can you befriend the world as it is without feeling that you've just kind of lost your heart on? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How, how can you just say, okay, well, this is all just the way it's supposed to be and not just go to sleep? And yeah. I think that's one of the challenges. You know, how can we actually think that every, I mean, both basically from a spiritual perspective, this is the form and emptiness. It's like the, the world as it is versus the world of uh, absolute perfection versus relative chaos and relative suffering, mm-hmm. both at the same time. Yeah. And I think having a more uh, process-oriented view of the world, too, kind of, it helps because you see the way the world is and you know that, well, you know, it's it's in the process of some kind of metamorphosis or becoming, and maybe the best way to help that is not necessarily to say, well, this world sucks, this world is doomed, yes. this world has all these problems, but to have more of a compassionate and temporal attitude towards it, mm-hmm. saying, well, this is, in the, this is in the middle of something, let me try to help myself and help this world um, actualize that potential. Um, I think that's that's sort of the attitude that I that I personally take and then I, I think I see in the integral thinkers like Epster and Orbindo and um and Wilbur and you know, it's this attitude that, you know, we are in a process of becoming and don't be a pessimist. I mean, don't be a naive optimist either, thinking everything's right. great. But um, you know, right. you need that sense of tension in order to help that the world. You need a sense that things are not all right, but at the same time there's this Real, this is amazing goodness at the heart of the world, and we want to bring that out. Yeah. Beautifully put. Yeah, I often think that it's like watching a child grow up and mm-hmm. to see that an 8-year-old is not a defective 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. A 12-year-old is not a defective 20-year-old. Uh, 12-year-olds and 20-year-olds have different capacities. Uh, you know, one can do trigonometry and one can't, all that good stuff. And, you know, there's some losses along the way in a certain way. An eight-year-old has a yeah. sense of magic and wonder that is often lost by the time one's 20. Yeah. You know, and that as a, I, I sometimes think that the, the attitude that just sort of helps me practice in a way is the attitude of a grandparent. And mm-hmm. to just say, oh, how beautiful it all is, how beautiful each of them are, knowing mm-hmm. that um, – I don't have to fix them. I don't have to make them grow. I just have to nurture them and, and love them and make sure that they're fed and watered and get some sunshine. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And that there's, there's actually there's something else at work here that I can relax in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yet, or even he, that the, the grandfather has to, in a certain sense, he's still growing. You know? He's yes, still, yes, yes. There's all these cycles that, you know, it's, it's just the beginning for for Granddaddy. Like yes. he's uh, he's got a cosmic universe awaiting him in yes. the future. If you believe in like cosmic evolution, and I mean, so I mean, Orobindo's cosmology is beautiful about that. I think. Um, really, it's just this, it's just dazzlingly infinite and hmm. very humbling. Um, so that hmm. even if you are, let's say, the leading edge, you're still the reason why you're the leading edge is because you've kind of humbled yourself to a point where you're you're open to these, um, you know, cosmic forces, this higher understanding, this 
higher minds yeah. or whatever you, the terminology you want to call it, um, and that's sort of what's going to guide you in a certain sense and help you actualize who you are. Yeah. Um, so we're all, we're, I guess we're all children yeah. in that sense. Well, you, um, you mentioned earlier about um, that the strata of all of the previous stages are still very much alive within us. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the practices of an integralist is to get in touch with those previous stages, so to speak, or the mm-hmm. earlier strata, the deeper strata of our psyches, and to mm-hmm. consciously bring on the best of them. And yeah. that in, in, in one of them is just uh, apropos what we're talking about, uh, basically the blue or the traditionalist amber altitude idea of obedience to God. And that we are actually, if, we, if you talk to a fundamentalist Christian, what they're working on is turning their life over to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, to, um, and to realize that this world is not my home and that I am a child of Almighty God and I have to obey. Now, of course, at the fundamentalist level, it's all about this one book which puts you in contention with all the other books and it's a whole big nightmare. But there's still something that about that is that can be brought forth to integral, and that is this idea of just relaxing and surrendering to the unfolding, knowing that it's unfolding into what did you say about Aurobindo? Just sparkling infinity. Yeah, and that you so, know that was his attitude too. I mean, not to take the uh, the escapist approach um, that maybe he believed some Indian philosophers and religious systems did, which is say, yeah. you know, my home is elsewhere. I need to get back up there. Yeah. I need to escape this world because this world is not where I'm from, but really right. to say, well, you know, maybe there's a reason why this world exists and right. okay, right. maybe my home is elsewhere, but yeah. I think the more important thing is to stay here and to do yeah. some good work. Um, yeah. right on. Because so, here we are. I mean, this is yeah. my home right now, for yeah. sure. I do want to... To sort of make it my my quest or my project or my prayer or whatever to mm-hmm. what is what is the I mean I hate to put it this way because it's it's a little contracting but uh, what is the will of God here I mean what does God have planned for me today mm-hmm. what 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 is what is the higher intelligence that's absolutely alive and sees me and loves me and is other than me in a certain important way. Uh, even as it's one with me, what's he, she, or it have to say to me right now? Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of a personal practice is uh, kind of new for integralists who have gone through, yeah. you know, secular modernity where we're basically on a stone <laughs> hurtling through space as an accident. Yeah. <laughs> or post-modernity where it's, you know, about, I don't know, kissing rainbows. Uh <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, a God bless green. I mean, I'm, God knows I went through it for just kissing a lot of frogs, basically. Just, just, um, and, and, and I always think every one of them turned into a prince for me. I just, I loved all my explorations of green. It's a oh. beautiful uh, a vision to realize you're part of this bigger movement um, and that you're being lived as well as living. Honestly, I think that's um, sort of the key phrase that I think we're all going through, uh, integral or, or not, in this world. It's this idea that, okay, sure, you're an individual, but um, it's time, I think, to open up our individuality to more universality without losing the individual. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that was important progress. That was There's a reason for 
that sense of limitation um, in the long run. And because, you know, there's advancements, there's democracy, there's science, just the whole modern worldview came out of that sort of uh, the sense of the material self in this world, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to self-actualize. But at this point in history, I mean, even with the Internet sort of returning us to collectiviz- collectivization and um, networks and hive mind and all that stuff, to me those are more of just metaphors for this opening back up to the universal again. Yeah. Uh, to being okay with being an individual, but also realizing that, you know, your individuality is also because of this network of ideas and people. And then on a spiritual level, you know, more than that, more like who knows on yeah. a spiritual level. Yeah. So um, I think that's a sort of a collective challenge, um, especially for Western culture because of its heightened sense of individualism. And not just kissing frogs and everything, but, um, you know, there's a feeling that, it's somehow time to allow this individual to do what it came here for, yeah. to actualize to this next phase that we've been talking about. And I think, I think uh, Teilhard actually said it very well when he was talking about how the new collective can't just eliminate the individual. It has to be this, this higher unity, sort of like a multicellular organism that mm-hmm. the cell doesn't lose its integrity. It becomes part of a larger whole. So how can we do that, you know, as integralists now, as evolutionary thinkers now, like, how can we do that with integrity to everything that's come behind us or before us, these other structures that are co-present with us? Yeah. I think that's a, it's a big challenge. And I'm happy to hear, though, that uh, that's the direction that integralists seem to be going into now, opening up into again. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, again, was beautifully put. I just talk to people along these lines all the time now. Mm-hmm. It's like, really, how do we actualize this precious human life that here we are this is the time and space where we are uh, manifesting and we see that there is a process and we are it and we are the expression of emergence itself into an emerging world and there's something about there's a spiritual practice in there somewhere jeremy i mean there's a spiritual there's a new spiritual lineage that wants to be born out of this evolutionary realization that is, I think, really exciting. I agree. Uh, it's funny because I, I had actually just been thinking about that this past couple of days for whatever reason, just wondering um, what new traditions might emerge. And, you know, there's a sense that, um, like, if you look at, like, the evolutionary traditions that are already out there, like, um, in, like, Next, Andrew Cohen, Craig Hamilton, I, I kind of had this ambiguous feeling with them where, it was hard for me to internalize the fact that they're an actual tradition. Like, traditions are what? Christianity, Buddhism, mm-hmm. yeah. Islam. And it was hard to kind of wrap my mind around accepting that fact that, you know what, maybe this is genuinely new and novel, and this is mm-hmm. this is just the beginning of uh, yeah. things to come, you know? Yeah. Well, it's the, you know, the upside of evolutionary spirituality is that it passes the test of science. Hmm. And that's, you know, no mythic religion can. Mm. Uh, But to actually see and feel emergence and to see the trajectories of history and to feel the karma, I mean, you know, it begins, this is where we start, you know, we talk about the difference between teal and turquoise or yellow and turquoise, depending on your system. You know, the move into a more spiritual understanding of integral is all about this. You know, it's really the felt Mm. sense of movement, of time the fourth dimension, as a felt sense, 
I mean, this could be a whole other conversation if you'd ever want to explore it, because part of my studies have been diving into pretty much uh, like mythical consciousness and traditional consciousness, and more on, on the esoteric side of things, but um, studying, let's say, Blake, the romantics and mythopoesis and mythological thinking and Jungian mm. studies and all that. So I've had a great time with that. Just basically, I've had this kind of difference with, let's say, Wilbur's theories on mythical being, well, the, the attitude, as you mentioned before, about science and mythical religion, I think, to put it shortly, I think there there are other forms of thinking that may not be incompatible with science, but materialism may be incompatible with. So the more mm -hmm. esoteric dimensions of mythical thinking, um, you know, Marcia Iliad and um, that sort of, uh, Joseph Campbell, of course, um, mm -hmm. and that whole mythopoetic dimension of pre-modern cultures, which I think to some degree we've sort of lost as we've moved into modernity and began to think more uh, along the rational side of things and sort of um, encapsulate ourselves, not necessarily in a bad way. Again, I think it was a positive thing, but um, remove ourselves from this kind of mythopoetic um, divine imagination, so to speak. And I don't think we were conscious of it back then. I think Owen Barfield called it the original participation. And he said we would be heading towards uh, the final participation. And it, it kind of strikes a chord with what you said earlier about looking back at our childhood and seeing that, you know, we lost the sense of wonder, perhaps. We lost the sense of connection. And it's a kind of nonlinear way of looking at it, I guess, because, you know, I mean, the whole idea behind progress is that, you know, we're progressing or getting better. So, I don't know. That's sort of my spiel on it. And uh, Yeah, the childhood thing is really, I think, instructive because we actually start out in a pre-conscious uh, infancy where we're pre-self-conscious in an oceanic state mm -hmm. and you know we're looking in some ways to re-achieve that but to do it as T.S. Eliot said to end up where we started but know it for the mm -hmm. first time yeah I think that's the integral this when I talk about you know contacting the earlier strata of our own psyches mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we want to do with, um, you know, I talked about in, we want to contact fundamentalism or traditionalism, this idea of being obedient or the idea of surrendering and turning my life over is very potent. It's very useful for integralists. So is the mm -hmm. previous stage, which is mm -hmm. the stage of magic. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of what uh, needs to happen in the integral world and is happening is... Um, nature mysticism from mm -hmm. shamanism to you know, ayahuasca to you know in my case i just when i remember to and i wish i did more uh talk to the trees mm. and really <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. listen you know <laughs> ask them a question and, and listen to the answer and the answer is always some version of everything's okay it's really something mm. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Maybe that's me. Okay, Maybe hey, I'm projecting. <laughs> but, but I'm saying this, this is part, part of the, the frothy edge of this, is yeah, to know yeah. that our project as integralists is not only to move forward, but actually moving forward. The process of moving forward is the process of going back and reappropriating yeah. what was lost. Yeah, and I, I very much agree with that, especially personally, because having dived into all these studies and Personally, being more of a creative thinker myself, I've always had this feeling that, is this really being integrated 
when we kind of like you know blow off mythical as a stage this before like but i think there's i think a growing sensitivity and i've actually been pleasantly surprised in the past couple of months and speaking with integral thinkers that they're kind of warming up to this idea that well maybe we do need to go back mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know in, in macintosh how he adopts and uses the uh the dialectic of history in a certain sense you might say that um from a very macro, deep time perspective, ancient societies had a kind of thesis, and modern societies have a kind of antithesis, and the synthesis is actually what will create the progress. So going for, yes. going forward may entail, as you said, going backward and reintegrating yes. these structures, yeah. rendering them transparent, and you know that's very much what Gepster is talking about. And yeah, um, I think the evolutionary and, maps yeah. call us to it. I mean, when we see our own strata of development. God, you just want to feel it again, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've been on this, like, amazing journey, and there's all these strata and layers of history, and only a few thousand years ago, we had a completely different relationship to time and space and, yeah. um, and completely yeah. different cosmologies. It's just amazing to you know, <clears throat> behold that as an idea, and it kind of makes indeed. you feel open and flexible in a new way towards the future. It does, yeah. and that's, I think, what we want. I mean, that's why, for me, there's actually a moral imperative to, start, to stop bitching about the world or to, it, or to somehow stop acting like it should be different in a fundamental way. I mean, it should be, of course. Children mm-hmm. should no longer starve, I mean, for starters, and mm-hmm. we can go on. But that, that's not where it's at in terms of, interpreting the world and actually working with what is in a way that's truly helpful. Yeah. It's demoralizing. It's, it somehow furthers this lost fall from paradise thing that has been, you know, so rampant and, you know, fair enough, whatever, but it's, I'm over it. I think from a a very Buddhist perspective and I, uh, my partner and I, again, had a conversation about this recently, uh, just ongoing really, because she used to be very involved with protest movements the thing that really pushed her away from uh, really embodying and identifying with that culture, a very postmodern culture, was this kind of sense of antagonism, this kind of negative, angry, needing justice, right. but also not really out of a sense of, of course, there's compassion, but I think you were kind of articulating what I was trying to say. There was a sense of just being so angry about the world and not really yes. coming Mad from a benevolent, benevolent, compassionate place. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, or so a, I, a place that's yeah. even heartened and passionate and, wow, you know, yeah. something that yeah. has a, a yay-sayer <laughs> to it. I mean, I, I think we could be way more effective activists if we just went into an area and did something constructive rather than just rabble-rousing, which is important. You know, you want to bring awareness to a certain issue. But I think coming to the table with, you know, some kind of solution could be a very a very powerful form of protest. Activism. Yeah, yeah, activism in some sort of way that, you know, like we're angry about what's going on in, you know, Africa or South America. I mean, I don't know. I, I think with the Internet age, there's, there's amazing ways to collaborate mm-hmm. and amazing ways to come together and actually enact some kind of change and make a dent. And we don't have to do it from an angry place. We can be right. compassionate. We can be, we have yeah. fierce compassion. Yeah, um, right on. Yeah, there, there was this great video. I don't know if you've seen it during the Occupy movement last year. Bob Thurman, I think that's his name. 
Oh, yeah, Robert he had, Thurman. Yeah, he had this great talk down at Occupy in at Wall Street uh, saying, you know, let's not otherize the 1%. You know, they're, they're humans too, and I'm pretty sure that they're not happy with the way things are going. So be compassionate, right. even for them. Like, wow. don't turn this into – yeah, I thought that was awesome that he said that, and it kind of struck me because I was almost getting swept up in the anger, you know, like, yeah, right. darn those 1%. <laughs> they got to – and then here comes Bob Thurman saying, guys, you know, let's be Buddhist about this. I think that was a great contribution to the movement, yeah. and hopefully, um, you know, future movements will be less angry and more conscious, more Well, I think aware, one of the, more... you know, one of the struggles or, or one of the, the next emergent qualities that we have to get our arms around is how to be passionate without being angry, how mm-hmm. to actually affect change without thinking that the world is fucked up. You know, it's it's yeah. kind of like how you nurture a nine-year-old. You don't say, mm. you stupid nine-year-old, you know, wait till you learn how to drive. Then you'll know how bad <laughs> this is. Yeah. You know, how bad you have it now. No, you don't yeah. do that. I just think, you know, at the level of global politics, we, we're going to have to learn how to contain anger within a larger empathy or compassion for humanity yeah. and Yes, that's um, a better way of putting it. You're right, because you yeah. can't get rid of it. It has to be included because it's the whole first tier, even theoretically yeah. speaking. Uh, you know, Claire yeah. Graves, one of his great memorable lines is that the, the, one of the markers of moving into second-tier consciousness is the radical diminishment of fear mm-hmm. or, or anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's present. It's just not – it's no longer the area that you're identifying with solely, you know, or right. dominantly um, – and, you know, that, you that goes with my theoretical, yeah, my own theoretical understanding of this is that as evolution occurs, um, the previous stages or epochs or organisms get miniaturized and contained yeah. within a larger whole. I think we're in for a good future, and uh, hopefully we won't ride off the tracks. But I, I feel, <clears throat> but my sense is this, there's so many great things happening, there's so much potential, let's not screw it up. We need to be more conscious. <laughs> it's not guaranteed. Yeah. Um, in the long run, maybe it's guaranteed. Right. But, you know, if we destroy ourselves on this planet, you know, no. I'm sure that consciousness will emerge in, you know, a billion years somewhere. Maybe it is somewhere, and it, it will happen. But yeah. Why, why can't we be the ones to, to like, we, we've been given a gift. You know, let's not squander it. Um, we've been given a gift to partake in this journey and, actualize consciousness and to evolve and come together as a world. So let's not screw it up. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's sort God of my bless take you, on Jeremy. It. That is beautifully put, and you're a very wise young man. Thank you. I appreciated our, our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Me very too. Much. Yeah, Jeremy Johnson, thank you for joining me. And, you know, more to come, right? Yep. It just keeps on, on, it just keeps on unfolding.